Good morning, my name is Andrew. For those of you whom I have not met, um, I'm one of the leaders here, but more importantly than that, I am a beloved son of the Most High King. That is the most important thing about me. Um, If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to meet you, but that's the baseline, that you know that. Um, And I'm gonna be up here teaching today, um, and and we are, we're, just beginning our summer series. Uh, this, this summer we are going to be looking at the Beatitudes, and if you're kind of caught off guard by that, thinking, did, did we not just finish the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, you are correct. We did finish the Sermon on the Mount, but we are circling back to the Beatitudes uh, to look at something very particular, because the way that Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount our brother Ben led us through this a couple weeks ago, is with this statement. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And as we were ending the sermon series, the Sermon on the Mount, we we acknowledge that we all crave this good life, this life that is built upon a rock that when the storms of life come, we are able to weather them. And I would say that not just us in this room crave that, but I think humankind as a whole craves the good life, the life that is, that is unshakable. We all crave that, and yet often we don't understand that it takes some practice and some effort. I think many of us uh, living in this modern age have bought into this myth of the on-demand lifestyle. Uh, To to tell a little story, to tell on myself a little bit, a few uh, weeks ago for Mother's Day, my boys uh, decided that they wanted to get their mom a Lego set. (laughs) Which you laugh at, but she was thrilled. And she had to stop herself from putting it together while they were napping because they wanted to watch. But anyway, so they wanted to get her this specific Lego set. It was this beautiful orchid. Um, and so they, they were like, mom loves flowers. She loves Lego because we love Lego. This is what we want to get her. And so they've decided, I check online. Yep, it's in stock at the store. We've got a busy week. Let's go pick it up on Saturday. Kind of a bad move on my part to wait till Saturday, right before Mother's Day. We get to the store, it's not there. We go to several other stores, it's not there. And we're thinking, what do we do? Did did I just like totally botch Mother's Day? And so I go home and I check. Amazon says, I can have it to you in three hours. And so click, done, Mother's Day was saved. But it's that type of story that, that underlines this I- idea that we live in a world that's on demand. You need something, Amazon can have it to you by sundown. Are you hungry? Uber Eats can have you something in 15 minutes that you don't have to work at. Or if you're bored, every movie, every TV show that you could imagine streaming in less than 10 seconds. And so we live in this world, in a culture that says, yeah, you, you don't have to work. You could just have it. Have it now. It's easy. Just click. K 
continue as guests. You don't even have to give us your information. We'll just send you it. Just pay for it. But we understand that spiritual formation doesn't work like this. Spiritual formation is a continual process of practicing the ways of Jesus, walking in lockstep with him, and that's how we're transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. And so the whole reason that we're circling back to the Beatitudes is exactly what Jesus was saying. He says that those who put these things into practice, those are the ones that will experience that good, unshakable life. And so we're circling back to look at what are some of these practices as we look at the the beatitudinal heart that Jesus describes. We're going to be looking at it through the lens of spiritual practices. What what are some of the things that, that we can do that have been handed down through generations of believers who have sought after the heart of Jesus to say, what can we learn that would help align us with what Jesus is wanting to do in and through us. And so that's what we're doing today. We'll be looking at the second beatitude. Uh, For those of you who've been with us for a while, we've had uh, a response time at the end of the teaching. Uh, But this summer, the response time is gonna look a little different. Instead of walking through and asking the questions and hearing from you guys how the Spirit is comforting you and challenging you, we're actually gonna spend some time practicing these things together and making space for us to not just hear Jesus' words. There were plenty of people that have heard his words, but we want to be people that put them into practice. And so we're going to endeavor to do that together throughout the summer, looking at Jesus' words and the Beatitudes and how we can practice them. So with that... We're going to be looking, like I said, at the second beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. But before we do that, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. Jesus, I thank you that you are here in this place. That those spiritual formation is not on demand, but takes practice and effort You are willing to meet us every single step of the way. It is your power and strength that change us and transform us. And so I pray that you would do that today. That as we come and we engage with these things, that what we would find is not some intellectual secret, some hidden wisdom, but that we would find the one true living God. We need you to show up today in a mighty and powerful way. And I thank you that you desire to do that far more than I could ever express. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, you may think this is kind of a strange way to start a Father's Day, a day that we celebrate fathers, and and here I am saying, blessed are those who mourn. But I think as, as, as I've been sitting with this passage over the last few weeks, one of the things that has become clear to me is that this is in, in no way 
a, a desire to add heaviness, but to rather acknowledge that we live lives marked by heaviness. My goal today is not to come and say, okay, let's all make a list of things that we need to mourn, but rather to acknowledge that to some degree we've all been carrying that list, whether we realize it or not. In fact, Gregory of Nyssa, an early church father, back in 400 AD, well before the internet, before you could see all sorts of the brokenness of humanity at a click, he says, it is impossible for one to live without tears who considers things exactly as they are. You see, the reality is, is that we, we live in the midst of a broken world. And so there are things that we're coming today with, the heaviness and the brokenness, and we are invited to mourn them and to be comforted. And so I, I want to start with that to remind us that this isn't, we're not manufacturing things here, but we're acknowledging things that are. But it is important as we talk about mourning to, to keep Jesus' words in context of the sermon that he's giving. He's not talking about any and all mourning. It's not this, okay, if, if you're really sad and you're mopey, that's great, blessed are you, but rather he is saying something that is tied into the progression of the Beatitudes. If you remember last week, Dawson taught on blessed are the poor in spirit. See, Jesus is, is writing this progression for us, and he says that, that when you start poor in spirit, when there is a true confession, Jesus, I am poor, I, I, I don't have what it takes, that a true confession of poverty in spirit will always lead to a true contrition of the heart. What starts intellectually with Jesus, I realize that I am poor in spirit. I realize I don't have what I need. Father, would you help me? Moves down into the emotions, the, 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 the anguish and the mourning to say, oh, I am so needy. There's so much that I need and, and I'm, I'm drawn into mourning. True contrition or true confession will always lead to contrition. And some would look at this and say that this mourning that we're talking about here is therefore mourning over sin. Jesus is calling us to mourn over our sin, to come to him and say, I am in need of redemption for I am a sinner. And that is true, but I believe that Jesus' view of mourning is far larger than just our sin. One of the things we've been talking about for a while as a church family is we want to have a more holistic view of brokenness. See, a holistic view of brokenness understands and delineates that there are different types of brokenness. We live in a world that is complex and complicated and things are rarely so easily boiled down to, okay, this is exactly what's going on. It's all rooted in sin. There's, there's brokenness in the world. And one note that I will make before, before talking about this is some of us may need help 
processing this, this holistic view of brokenness. You may be coming today with weightiness on your shoulders, feeling uh, uh, that elephant's foot on your chest. And you may need help distinguishing where, where did, what is this brokenness? Is, is, is this because of sin or is there something else going on? And I want to encourage you that that type of, of processing is great to do in community. To bring it to brothers and sisters and go, hey, I, I don't know what's going on. Would you help me? To do it in community, reliant upon the Spirit, and under the authority of Scripture to come and to bring our brokenness and say, I need help to figure out what is going on. And so with uh, a holistic view of brokenness, we'll, we'll look at it in, in three distinct areas. The first area, one that we're probably all very aware of, we've mentioned it already, and that is sin. And this isn't just a category of brokenness for those outside the church and those outside of the family of God. We have not escaped that yet as followers of Jesus because though we have been freed of the penalty of sin. Jesus has come and he has paid for our sin. There is still a process being worked out in us where we are being released from the power of sin. See, Paul in Romans talks about how there is this sinful flesh that is waging war. We, we do the things that we don't want to do. We feel that pressure. There is a power of sin that is still being put to death in the world and in us. But ultimately, we've been freed from the penalty. He is undoing the power, and ultimately, we will live in a world that is free of the presence of sin. Jesus is coming back and he will drive out all sin. He is creating something new and beautiful and holy that is devoid of sin. So that's the first area of brokenness. The second area of brokenness is trauma. And this is a, a very important distinction to make and something that we often struggle with of trying to differentiate between sin and trauma. Some of us have had our sin treated like trauma and some of our trauma treated like sin. For some of us, we've had traumatic things done to us and there's wounds and it's wrong for us to take a look at that and say, ah, that's sin that needs to be repented of. No, you were wounded. We may respond in sin to our trauma, and that needs to be dealt with, but trauma is not something that we need to repent of. Secondly, I think it's important to note here that trauma is not always a result of sin. Sometimes people hurt people, but it isn't always sin. And for some of us, that, that, that's a that's a struggle and a tension that we're working out even now. Maybe for some of us here on this Father's Day, we're dealing with trauma and trying to wrestle through, 
is this a result of sin or is this a result of my dad trying his best and failing? Regardless, trauma is worth mourning. The last area of brokenness we'll take a look at is trouble. And this is a a brokenness that has permeated the world. You see in, in Genesis, we see that when Adam and Eve distrust God, when they disobey what God has called them, the relationship he has called them to walk in, we see that the very creation becomes broken. We see that the the ground starts to become a place where thorns and thistles grow. There is trouble in the world. There are hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires, all sorts of things. There is trouble in the world and it is worth mourning over. And so all three of these areas of brokenness we are called to mourn and viewed through the lens of the first beatitude we come as people who are poor in spirit. And so when we approach our sin and we mourn over our sin, we come and we say, oh God, I am so in need of you to conform me to the image of your son and to drive out and put to death my sinful flesh. And for those of us who are coming to mourn our trauma, we say, oh God, I need you to heal these wounds. I can't heal them on my own, but you are the great physician. Would you heal me? And for those of us who are mourning the trouble in the world, we can come and say, oh God, I long for you to come back. I can't wait till you come back, Jesus and restore your creation. My wife and I have this conversation often these days as we've been walking through sickness in some of our extended family, this like, I I just can't wait for him to come back. It hurts, and I know that it's not gonna get fixed until he comes back. God, would you help us? And so maybe this Father's Day, you guys are wrestling with this brokenness. As much as Father's Day is a day to celebrate and honor fathers, it is one that comes with a lot of mixed emotional baggage. And so maybe some of you today are coming, having made choices that have led to a breakdown in relationship with your father and that's leading you to mourn. You don't have the relationship that you thought you would. Or maybe it's not a result of your choices, but it's it's coming and mourning the fact that you have endured and suffered under an unhealthy relationship and you bear the wounds of trauma inflicted by a father. Or maybe for some of you, you come today mourning the loss of a father or the process of losing a father to sickness, old age, the trouble of the world. And for each of those different people, I want to come and remind us, like my brother Abe used to say, whether you have a good dad or a bad dad, or never knew your dad, 
you need a better one. And you have a father in heaven this morning who wants to come and meet you in the midst of your mourning. You have a father who longs to comfort you, to wrap his arms around you, to remind you that he is there with you even in your grieving. So this Father's Day, I pray that you would see the Father's heart for you, even if you find yourself in grief. So that's what we mourn, a holistic view of brokenness, looking at the fact that we don't just mourn sin, but we also mourn trauma and trouble in the world. And now I want to take a look at how we mourn. And several months ago, as we were going through the Beatitudes, uh, there were three things that were brought up as, as ways in which we as people avoid mourning. Things that we turn to in an effort to not engage with the difficult feelings. Say, I, I'd rather not deal with that right now. And those three things were repression, retreat, and resignation. And so today, I want to take us back to those three things and give us specifically three spiritual practices that help us to avoid engaging in those things, but to engage well in mourning with our God. Okay? So we're going to look at three areas in which we may be tempted to avoid mourning, but how some spiritual practices may help us engage with mourning. So the first one is repression. This is the, uh, the response to the discomfort that says, I'm just going to stuff it. I don't want to feel it. I'm just going to shove it down. And maybe, just maybe, it'll go away. Or as our good friend Elsa sang, conceal, don't feel. But just like Elsa, it doesn't often work for us. She explodes on a mountainside with all this icy crags and all that kind of stuff. And similarly, we cannot repress well. Some of us here may look at that and go, yep, I do that. Doesn't work, but I do it. Others of us may look and go, I don't think I do that. But if you do, your body knows it. We were not meant to repress these emotions, and when we do, they come out sideways in our bodies. But we are invited into mourning. We don't need to repress. And so this first spiritual practice we're going to look at is one called examine. And examine is a beautiful process. This was actually started by a guy named uh, Ignatius of Loyola, who started the Jesuit order. And it was started by him in concern that his brothers, monks, who would devote themselves all day to the things of God, that they would miss God's voice and activity in their life. If, if Jesuit monks could be in a place where they're missing God's voice and activity, might we also be in need of the same type of help 
And so I, I would define it this way. The examine is a process of regularly reflecting on the flow of your life in search of the voice and activity of God so as to create a deeper awareness of him. Let me read that again. A process of regularly reflecting on the flow of your life in search of the voice and activity of God so as to create a deeper awareness of him. Now I say regularly, and I don't want that to scare people off. Regularly can mean a lot of things. An examine is a practice that I think bears the most fruit when it is repeated, but it isn't something that, that is pointless if not engaged with regularly. For some of us here, it may be helpful, my wife does a great job of this, that on a yearly basis, come New Year's, she takes time to do an examine. She takes time to reflect and to look for the voice and activity of God in the last year. For some of us, it may be seasonal. The end of summer, the end of school, saying, I'm gonna take time to reflect and to look for the voice and activity of God. Some of us, it may be daily, others hourly. But regardless, this process of seeking the voice and activity of God is powerful. So to give some practical tips, so like I said, we're gonna to get to practice this in a little bit. The first practical tip I would give is to pause. Examine is very hard to do on the go, on the move. We are invited to slow down and reflect, to unburden ourselves from our busyness, the things that we go to when we repress our emotions and our mourning, we're invited to pause to stop. The second thing that I would say is that the, the pattern is important. If you're like me, often when I start to get into this uh, reflective state, I can get a little stuck. I can focus too much on the past and the difficulty in the past, and I, I become blind or siloed with blinders on. And yet what we see is that, that the way in which God calls his people to remember follows a, a pattern. First, we're called to remember the present. God is here with me in the present. Secondly, only after we recognize that God is here with us in the pre present can we go to the past and say, God, where, where were you in the midst of all of that? Today, when I, when I had that blow up with my child, when I responded poorly, what was, where were you in that? What were you doing in that? Or when I just got off the phone with my parent and they were telling me that my dad's not doing well, where are you in the midst of that? So we start in the present, acknowledging God's presence. We look to the past to see where he has been, what he's doing and then we turn our eyes to the future and we remember where he's going. God, you are coming back. This pain will be undone. Jesus, you are transforming my heart into the image of your son. I know where this is headed. I know where we're going in the future. And so I can be rooted in the present and I can understand my past. Lastly, 
in terms of practical tips, we're invited to pay attention to our emotions. Now, emotions are, are, are tricky things, and I would say here they're not authoritative. Your emotion does not dictate reality, but they're really good check engine lights. And so as you're walking back through your day, asking God, okay, what, what have you been up to? Where have I missed your voice? Where have I missed your movement in my day? Be, be mindful of your emotions and bring them to God. God, I, I, felt, I feel angry when I think about this. What, what is going on? There's something going on deeper here and I need your help uncovering it. Pay attention to your emotions. Second thing that we do to, re- to avoid mourning is to retreat. I'm really good at this one. We avoid our mourning with distractions. Sometimes these are really good things. Sometimes they're not so good things. It can be everything from medicating ourselves, turning to alcohol or other vices but sometimes it has the, the sheen and the facade of something good. I'm, I'm gonna strive really hard. I'm gonna be an, a, an excellent missional community leader. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna evangelize on the streets and I'm gonna tell people how good God is because I don't wanna deal with what's going on in here. That's too hard. So I'm gonna retreat, I'm gonna avoid it. For retreat, I would offer up the spiritual practice of a prayer of lament. When we are tempted to run away from pain, we are given the opportunity to engage with it through a prayer of lament. And this can feel uncomfortable for us, can feel often like, well, isn't that just complaining? Don't we read in Romans 8 that, that God is working all things for the good of those who love him? Is, isn't, if, if God is sovereign and he's up to something good, who am I to come to him and lament? Shouldn't I just buckle down and trust him? But when we offer prayers of lament, we will often find ourselves in pretty good company with those in the Bible. The book of Lamentations documents a people who are mourning over their sin before God. The author describes tears flowing down their faces like a torrent of water that their eyes have no respite because they are lamenting their sin before God. Psalm 13 documents a man lamenting his pursuit in oppression by his enemies. My heart is filled with sorrow. How long, O Lord, will this go on? Jesus himself weeps, seeing that his friend Lazarus has died, knowing that he's about to raise him from the dead, and yet it is the trouble in this world, the the, the disease and death that he engages with and weeps over. See, it is not wrong for us to lament brokenness, to mourn over brokenness, even though we know where God is going with it in the end. Put another way, Ann Voskamp says this, lament 
is a cry of belief in a good God, a God who has his ear to our hearts, a God who transfigures the ugly into beauty. Complaint, on the other hand, is a bitter howl of unbelief in any benevolent God in this moment, a distrust in the love beat of the Father's heart. So when we bring our laments to God, it it isn't to put God up on the stand and say, you messed up, you did something that should not have been done, but rather to say, God, I am in pain and I know only you can fix it. I have no one else to turn to but you. Would you come and meet me in my sorrow, in my mourning? So a prayer of lament is an honest expression of grief, pain, and angst to God as a declaration of our trust to him as one who is always good. One of the other places that you see a lament is in Psalm 126, where it talks about people who have sowed seeds in tears. And in preparation for this, I was having a conversation with my wife who is a master gardener in her own right. Um, And she was telling me about how there is a, a whole subset of seeds that for them to germinate properly, for them to to reap a full harvest, before you plant them, you gotta soak them. That there is, is some protective casing that needs to be stripped off before they're put in the ground for them to germinate like they're meant to. And so as the, as the author of this psalm is writing and saying, I, I went out and I was, I was sowing seeds in tears. I believe what's going on is that in the goodness of God, God is able to use our tears dropping down into the hole in which we're planting seeds to strip off the casing of those seeds so that someday there may be a bountiful harvest. That our God is good enough to use our tears to not just comfort us as we mourn, but actually make our tears effective for fruitfulness. So that whether it's us or someone else, that that down the road there may be a full harvest because tears over brokenness were sown into the ground with those seeds. That we believe in a God who is that good so as to use even our tears for fruitfulness. So some practical tips for those of us who need to engage in a prayer of lament. First off, we have the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms is filled with prayers of lament. Almost, I think, a third of them would qualify as prayers of lament. And I've listed just a handful up there that could be helpful for you. But one thing I want to call your attention to is the trajectory of those laments. All of the prayers of lament, save one, follow a similar trajectory. Oh God, where are you? I need you. But you know what? I know who you are. I know how good you are. It always starts in the morning, but the eyes are drawn upwards to the goodness of God. 
would our prayers of lament follow that similar trajectory? Secondly, this is an opportunity for us to give voice to our sadness to God. This isn't venting into the ether. This isn't going and screaming into a pillow. That pillow has no power to save you. But it's bringing them to a good God who has, like Ann Voskamp was saying, has his ears to our hearts, who desires to hear your lament and to comfort you in the midst of it. Thirdly, for those of us who tend to resign ourselves in the midst or when we are needing to mourn, and, and this I would, I would say is, is the giving in to hopelessness. You know what, it's just broken. I, there's no comfort to be found. I guess this is just what it is. For those of us who are prone to resign ourselves in the midst of pain, I would offer practicing the presence. This is a beautiful spiritual practice that, that is far from, okay, I'm gonna invite God into this moment, but rather acknowledging God is with me even now. See, the thing that the person needs who is tempted to resign themselves is not a word of encouragement of, hey, things are gonna get better, it's okay. They need hope that God is exactly who he says he is, that he hasn't gone anywhere. They're not alone. They need the presence of God there with them. They need to feel the presence of God. And so practicing the presence is a recognition of God's presence and pursuit of experiencing it in the everyday stuff of life. God, you are here with me and I'm gonna pursue experiencing you even in the everyday stuff of life. Some practical tips on this front. First, I would say schedule it. This might be a time thing. Hey, I'm gonna stake out this specific time every day. I'm gonna set an alarm on my phone and I'm going to sit and, and, and trust and acknowledge God's presence even here with me right now. Or maybe it's event-based. Maybe it's when you hear your three-year-old's defiant no that has been the predecessor to many outbursts of anger and rage on your part. Maybe you hear that no and you say, okay, I know that I'm tempted to go sideways with this, but God, you're here with me. You are here with me right now. What are you doing here in this moment? Maybe it's when you see that specific name come up on your caller ID, a relationship that is broken and strained and you just, I just can't right now. It hurts too much to even see the name on the screen. It's a moment to turn and say, but Jesus, you're here with me. 
Or maybe it's when you see another news headline and you feel like things will never change. It's that again. The world is so broken. It's an opportunity to stop and say, Jesus, you are here with me in the midst of this. Would you show me your presence? Would I be able to experience your presence right now? Secondly, we can verbalize our needs. And this I see happening in two different directions. One, we verbalize our needs upwards. Say, God, would you comfort me? I, uh, right now I'm, I'm reading this news headline and I am tempted to believe that, that, that things will never get better, that you'll never come back, that this is all that's in store for humanity. Would you remind me that that's not true? Sometimes we also need to verbalize inwardly. Like the psalmist in Psalm 42, that we would turn inward and say, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Sometimes we need to talk to ourselves to remind us that God is actually here with us. And he's true. He's worth trusting in. So whether we are prone to repress, retreat, or resign, in the face of sorrow, we are invited to engage with God in the practice of mourning. But why? Why not give in? Why not retreat, repress, resign ourselves? What, why do we press in to mourning? Well, Jesus tells us it's because we are comforted. Now, Jesus is, is not, uh, at least in this, in this verse, real explicit on what that comfort means. Is that comfort just some warm, fuzzy feeling? Some intellectual assent that, okay, yep, God's in control, so even in the midst of my mourning, I'm comforted because I, I know intellectually that God is big and he is strong and everything's okay? No. See, the, the way in which we are comforted in the midst of our mourning is that we experience the very person of God. If you think back, each of the spiritual practices that helps us in, to engage with mourning is intensely relational. God does not just meet his people and comfort them from a distance, but he actually meets them with himself incarnate. One of the commentators that I read in preparing for this um, that has been a, a big blessing to our church family throughout this last season, Sermon on the Mount, was a guy named Frederick Bruner. And he had this little section where he was wrestling with, with what do I do with the translation of the word blessed? It's a, it's a strange word to translate. There's a, a lot of different ways to translate it. And he said... I think that Jesus is doing something more than just stating facts. If you translate it as happy, it seems like Jesus is just acknowledging, oh, that person over there, they're happy. They're doing well. But rather, what, what Bruner says that he thinks Jesus is doing is that he is actually giving help. 
He's not just saying from a distance, you over there, you are blessed, but he is coming and saying, no, I, I wanna bless you in the midst of your mourning. I am, I'm here to give you help in the midst of your mourning. He sees that translating it happy can seem banal or trite. Translating it blessed can seem super spiritual. And so he translates it as blessings on, or as he says, most compactly, I am with you, or I am on your side. And so we could rephrase Jesus' beatitude about mourning this way, I am with you, and I am on your side when you mourn, and I will comfort you. This is deeply and intensely personal and relational. When we mourn our sin, we're met with the son who died on our behalf and paid the price of our sin that we could never pay. When we mourn the trauma that we've experienced, we're met with the spirit who is now at work within us to bring healing, to to heal our wounds and bind up our broken hearts. And when we met, when we mourn trouble in the world, we're met with the Father, who as it says in Revelation, and I heard a voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. See, the, the, the very thing that comforts us in the midst of our mourning is God Himself. He gives Himself to His people as the very comfort that they need. That is what is on offer this morning. For those of you who come heavy and weary, Jesus offers himself. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. And as much as I would love to stand up here and tell you all about that comfort... My words are not sufficient, but his presence is. And so what we're gonna do now is I'm gonna invite the band up. And I'm gonna have them play just some instrumental music. And those three slides that laid out some of the practical tips for these three spiritual practices will be up on the screen rotating through. And I want to encourage us to sit with the Spirit and ask, is there one of these practices that you're leading me to engage with right now? Are you prone to repress, to retreat or resign? May the Spirit be leading you into one of these practices to bring you into a place where you are able to rightly mourn what needs to be mourned. And I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that when we do that, 
we will be met with the comfort of the one true living God. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to let the band play while we engage with the spiritual practices. And then I will come back up and lead us to the table for communion. Jesus, you are so gracious to us. We're so often prone to run away from the very thing that brings us life, your presence. But I pray now that as we engage with these practices, that that we would be able to, like Gregory of Nyssa said, look at things the way they truly are, even if that brings tears to our eyes. Because in truth, and in mourning over the brokenness that is real around us, we're offered comfort. We're offered you. Would you lead us in this time?